Amy, you know how we like to say the Master of Americans is where America goes for therapy? Well, for legal reasons, we really need to clarify that we're not actually licensed therapists. <laughs> well, I, I mean, probably that's clear, but you I'm mean, glad that you clarified. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think what we really are is where America goes for parenting advice. Well, that's where so many questions that end up uh, leading to therapy start, you know? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, so, I mean, what food do you cook for the school International Day potluck? Do you raise a kid with a religion that matters to you culturally, but you no longer believe in spiritually? What do you do when there are two religions in the house? Do you raise your kid bilingual, trilingual, monolingual with Bilingual swearing abilities, that's going to be my kids. Woochika! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where's the line between participating in one side of your family's cultures and cultural appropriation? Uh, mm-hmm. And what if what we look like matters more than what we think? Like, will my kid identify more with my partner if they look more alike? Okay, I think at some point we have to stop listing questions and, you know, start the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for donating to support the Mashup Americans podcast. With your help, we are looking forward to bringing more stories of Mashup America your way. To keep up with all the freshest, mashiest news, subscribe to our newsletter. Go to mashupamericans.com slash newsletter so that you'll get our newsletter each week and stay up to date on what's happening with us and the podcast. on the Mash of Americans, what to do with all those questions that tear at us as we do our best to raise our kids. We recently had global parenting expert and journalist Christine Grosslow and writer and adoptive dad Ruman Alam on the show to talk about raising generation mashup. We also had Henry, our producer's delightful seven-year-old son, talking about what it means to be Chindian, you know, Chicago and, and Indian. <laughs> you sent us so many great letters and questions since then, and so we had to dive back in. So we're taking your questions and doing our best to tease out the answers with our good friend Matt Sales. Matt is a celebrated photographer, an Angelino, a man who sees beauty in all people, and a father to two beautiful sons mashups of their black dad and their Salvadoran Guatemalan American mom. He also went to Stanford and his wife went to Northwestern, my alma mater, and we've had many a competitive conversation about it. (laughs) And Matt and I actually went to middle school together and high school, and one of the joys of knowing someone since the most awkward time in your life is that nothing can embarrass either of us ever again. (laughs) We've already been through braces together. Oh, braces and so many other things. Just (laughs) all of the puberty is all bad. Um, So no holds barred. I love it. Bring on the questions. First, let's bring Matt in. Matt, pull up a seat. Hi, everyone. Hey, Matt. Hello, Matt. <laughs> so excited that you're here. But I don't want to like waste time on pleasantries because we're all working parents who have many jobs outside of the house. So maybe we can just jump right in. We can start with the usual. Matt, how do you mash up? I mash up in my family. I am black. Uh, My wife is uh, Guatemalan and Salvadorian, and so we have two boys that we are raising bilingual and bicultural and uh, hoping to make the best of it. And how old are they? They are two and four. They're so cute. Sometimes they are, but I think that that just encourages um, their level of uh, 
parent torture. <laughs> because they know they can get away with it and the everyone thinks they're adorable. Manipulation comes early, right? I think it's one of the first skills we learn. Survival. It's, yeah. Anyways, so since the inception of, of the Mashup Americans, we've always gotten tons of questions about parenting. It's kind of at the core of so many of the things that we're doing. And so we actually wanted to go through a bunch of questions that we've gotten from listeners, obviously knowing there's no right answers, but how we might approach these and what kind of resources that we use in our own lives. I think when we very, very first started four years ago, we were thinking about how we're going to be parents. Yeah. I guess I already was, but my baby was such like a blob at that point that it <laughs> I wasn't parenting a three-month-old. I was just trying to keep him from being dead. And people are coming to us with really tough things. I just want to say like we just feel so honored that people share these questions with us and these like deeply personal stories. Totally. Okay, so a first question. This came from a listener who is Indian and Jewish and whose partner is white and British, actually. The listener writes, My daughter just said something that made me feel kind of helpless. I had told her that she looked a little tired and pale. She asked what pale means, and I said kind of lighter. She said shyly, well, that's good. She wants to have white skin. I told her her skin is beautiful, and we left it there for the moment. But now I'm crushed about what to do to help her see her light brown skin as beautiful. She's not the only brown kid in class, but the town and the whole area we live in are mostly white. Do you have advice? Well, we dealt with this issue just a few months ago. One day, my son came home and was like, I want to be white. Oh, boy. My Both my wife and I were like... <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> and what we realized, of course, is he was talking about skin color, not culture. So the first thing we had to do was, you know, separate those two issues, right? We had to break it down and understand where it was coming from. He is, you know, one of few uh, students of color in his preschool. And um, obviously for him, it just felt about feeling different. He was three at the time. And so we started with, well, Moana's brown and, and Maui's mm -hmm. brown and Obama's brown and Dada's brown and Grandpa's brown and... Abuelita is brown and Abuelito is brown and sort of starting to just really focus on places where he could see himself in places outside of school, since in school he wasn't going to see a lot of it. Matt, I think that that is incredible advice because it gives so many admirable and beautiful icons to look to. Like everybody from your grandmother to your dad to Moana are also brown. That's awesome. I mean, it's heartbreaking, right? Like as a parent, I can see why our listener was so crushed. And also as a person, I absolutely had that experience growing up. I didn't even see my own skin color. And it's not for a lack of having a Korean community. It was just the whole world told you that that white was beautiful. And the round, big blue eyes was beautiful. At least, it, you know, again, like in the 80s in the Midwest. I live in such a different environment now than that. And my kids are surrounded by so many brown kids that it's hard to imagine. But, like, it's so pervasive, right? And I wonder if in your work as a photographer, I feel like that standard of beauty is still something that you push against. Oh, yeah. I think that that's why representation is so important. Whether that's what they see on television or what they see in the city or, or country around them or the books they're reading or the television shows they're watching. It is really important to see yourself and be able to see yourself in a positive way. That's what I certainly would tell this listener is, like, show as many positive examples as you can so that your child can see their own beauty. You can start now to create a, a solid base for that without having to sort of 
preach it in a, in a way that may make them feel more like another. So Moana sounds like it's doing peak awesomeness of representing brownness. And also Amy's son loves the Spanish version of the soundtrack, which when I was there heard on repeat. <laughs> and having never seen Moana, I was delighted to hear it only in Spanish. You haven't seen Moana? <laughs> uh, not yet. <laughs> when you read lists of like diverse books, right, books to read to your kid that have diverse perspectives, often they're kind of about the civil rights movement or um, for Jews, it's like pogroms in Europe or something about oppression and overcoming oppression. How do we tell narratives where kids of color or other mashup kids are at the center or not just kids or characters or protagonists are at the center where it's not only about oppression? In the black community, for example, so many of our icons have come from struggle, right? Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to diminish those significant icons, but there's something to be said for having role models that come from a a more positive place. They're not a reaction to oppression. You know, like right now we're big on Coco. Like we've seen it now twice. And it was so good. It was so good. We actually went with my wife's entire family. It was me, my two boys and six Latina women to go see Coco. Or... <laughs> so good. <laughs> but anyway, the point being that, you know, you, you want to show a variety and yes. some can be about struggle and oppression and the realities of the universe, but also some should just be beautiful stories. Do you bring these suggestions to the teachers and saying like, when you're talking about diversity, here's some books you might want to read? So this started during um, Black History Month. And so someone had brought in a book on Martin Luther King and the kids who were three at the time were starting to understand that like people didn't let kids of color go into the swimming pool. They didn't play with them. And so you're having three-year-olds starting to have conversations about whether they should or shouldn't play with kids of color or being like, oh, I play with so-and-so even though they are of color. We just weren't thrilled with introducing that type of um, material without context also without telling us we want there to be a a, a a conversation about about race and culture but let's start with it from a place of love first before a place of exclusion well so this is about feeling alone in your own family This is from a Korean-American woman with a white partner. Her two kids favor their white parent a little bit physically. They just look a little bit more like their white dad. And she uh, wrote to us, Despite me doing my best to pass in my culture, speaking Korean to them, eating Korean food, reading Korean books, the fact is that they will speak English as a dominant language and other people treat them essentially as white kids. As someone who was born in Korea, speaks only Korean to my parents and identifies in my adult years, at least as a Korean immigrant, it feels kind of lonely and sad thinking about being the only, quote, minority in my own family in a community, in a country that is so dominated by white culture. I I think this speaks to so many families, not one with just an immigrant parent, but in mashup families where one culture is much more recognized or celebrated than the other. What could our listener do to feel less alone? It's a, such a good question. I would imagine part of it is seeking other families that that look like hers to know that she's not alone in the world. Right. Mm. So that there is a sense of we're not alone in this and our kids are seeing this piece of themselves somewhere else. 
one of the great joys of having a mashup family is that we um, are creating new traditions all the time. But there's also a, a truth that it often comes with a loss. Maybe this is just is grappling with the loss of the the loss of that. Right. That's part of how on the funny side, often it's our guilt. And, um, you know, it's why on our website we have a section just about issues. <laughs> um, there's an inherent difference between your own upbringing and the one you're giving to your kids when you're in a mashed up family. Like and look, we all have kids that are pretty young. Right. But we had the pleasure on our parenting expert episode, um, you know, of hearing from our producer, Lizzie's son, Henry. Some of my classmates asked me if I was Japanese. I was kind of puzzled. I mean, they didn't know yet, so I was like, I'm not from there. No, I'm Indian. I usually just tell them where I'm from and grin. But sometimes I tell them more about my culture because if you want to learn, I'll love to tell you. Just hearing even a seven-year-old talk about his identity um, in a way that maybe wouldn't have been apparent when he was younger. And our listener, you know, is, is really like, she's she's doing all the right things, right? And it, I'm sure that will, that will get in there, too. And it's probably hard to have confidence. So maybe one of the steps is to really, as I said, I think finding other mashup parents may give her more confidence in this piece of it and, and mourning the loss of some of this, but also having some faith that the steps she is taking are going to lead to a connection to their Koreanness. And it might take time. I mean, you never know when that connection might might come come about. But it right. seems like she's planting all the appropriate seeds. And she should just just call us up. Just remember, we're here. We're we're doing the same thing. I mean, he's like specifically doing the same thing. <laughs> and uh, and I I think from my perspective, you know, so my kid is a blonde, blue eyed girl. I'm married to someone from mainstream white culture. The cool thing about mashups is that there's so many types of ways of mashing up, right? And again, talking about like religiosity, just as for my example, or religious mashups, is that Neil doesn't have a strong one. So even to say we're interfaith is is not really quite right, because it's not two faiths. Right. There's space for your faith. There's, because... there's, yeah. It would be very different if he was practicing another religion, right? Yeah. If it, in, in a zero sum game, you're not taking much away. Right. Exactly. And you know, as we've discussed before, I love Christmas. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do think about if my daughter one day was like, I want to like get married in a church or something, if she would choose to not somehow be Jewish. Truly, like it makes me, it just makes me really sad. But I think it brings up an important question, which is, you know, from the listener, is can there be a our harmonious or equal balance in your mashup, or is one always dominant? And how does that mm. affect your relationship? Oh, that's parenting? such a good question. Matt. Right? It's yeah. like I'm sure there's always one that sort of wins out, and. How do you handle that? How do you feel right when it's you're part of a mashup? But as much as you try to be equal, you're losing that 60-40 battle. And right. that's, to some degree, kind of what this is was happening to right. the listener, right? It's like, it's not that she's not making the efforts. It's just she's fighting an uphill battle. Do you have a sense in your family where there's a dominance or not? Oh, our family definitely leans towards the, the Central American, for sure. 
one of the things that is hard is is for me to even identify, like we were talking about earlier, what are the positive elements of blackness that I'm trying to pass on to my children, you know, and not the stereotypical ones and not the ones that are about struggle, but the ones that are just based in pride and and self-worth and self-value. Because as a black American, I don't have a flag to look back to. Mm. My mm. traditions cannot be as strong as my wife's Guatemalan Salvadorian ones that are so tangible, mm. right? When you took slaves out of Africa, you disconnected them from their culture. I can't point back to a country or a food or a song that is not based in slavery, struggle, southern um, southern slave existence. When my mother-in-law is walking down the street and meets someone else in El Salvador, whether they have they've come from different cities, different towns, different uh, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, like they have tangible things that they can sort of connect on. I remember one time we were in Fatburger and she met someone there and they talked for 15 minutes about food and places and things and it, it's just so concrete. How does that make you feel? It doesn't make me feel any any way in particular. I, I I'm glad for that. I want my children to have something very tangible. I mean I just I also want them to be proud to be black as well. I mean, so much of this, too, is that we don't know until our children are grown, right? And even then, because, like, everybody changes and your identities can shift. And it may be something that we give them or that we, like, parent in the verb way, trying to to imbue in them now. And it may be stuff that, like, we have no control over, which is, and to me, that's the part that's, like, makes my mind explode. And in the end, like, they are going to be black men. Society does not allow them to be anything but that, right? My boys are above average in size. They will somewhere be between six foot three and six foot five. And, you know, they will be black men. Society will see them that way. And so obviously it's very important for me to give them lessons and tools to prepare them for that. Because one of the hardest things I had to go through growing up was the first time I realized the way other people saw me and the first time mm. I scared someone by uh, just being just being <laughs> by just being the last question that we have here and then we're going to go to a question of yours is um it comes from an Irish-Italian woman who's raised Catholic, converted to Islam, and is married to an Iranian-American man. She writes, just so happens that in addition to my husband, my best friend is Iranian. We also live very close to my husband's family, so I find that I spend a lot of time participating in Iranian culture due to family and friends. I celebrate Iranian holidays, cook and eat Iranian food, and participate in Iranian customs. I sometimes feel like in addition to my own culture, I have adopted a second culture— so, she writes, when you have a mashup family, can you also still border on cultural appropriation? What is the difference between adopting the culture of your loved ones and cultural appropriation? I think this is a great question. It is a great question. I Just from my perspective, she's already doing great. How wonderful to be participating and so close and so interested and engaged with your your in-laws and the community and your friends and to care so deeply and to think of it 
as your own. Um, so that's where I'd, where I'd want to start. There's probably some rules of thumb here, but do you guys have anything that you want to start out with with response to this too? I'm very sensitive to this as well, uh, just personally, because Spanish is my second language, really, not Korean. Like, Korean is kind of like the language I grew up hearing in my ears, but, like, I speak Spanish more. Like, I am around Spanish speakers. I've spent more time in South America than I have in Korea. So there's some part of that which I can, like, kind of sort of identify with. But I think I think there's always a difference between, like, being really closely aligned and celebrating a culture than, like, taking it and saying that it's yours. For me, cultural appropriation is about, like, it's about a power grab. It's saying that this is mine. Um, I have somehow discovered it. It's like a Columbusing of this and, and taking it. It's less about, like, an equal flow of traditions and ideas. You can always celebrate and, like, do exactly what she's doing, celebrating Iranian holidays, cooking and eating Iranian food, participating in Iranian customs. She's not saying that. She's Iranian, and I think that that's beautiful. But I think there's that, a difference between that and, like, a dolezaling situation, right? But isn't that exactly <laughs> what it is? Because it's just about not saying that you are. I mean, I feel like that's almost really what the, like, the line is, because when you're talking about, like, dolezaling, it's like, don't say that you are when you're not. You can appreciate, but don't claim. Yeah, and I think, I but I, and I'm thinking about this from, like, I mean, I would be curious in your family, right? Because you said so much of the Latinness is is dominant, right? So, like, do you ever feel like you ever cross a line, or where do you know where the line is? You know, we raise our boys as part of a you know a Latino mashup, but we yeah. don't. I am not Latino, yeah. And because of that, I certainly wouldn't use either language or even make a joke. That would be reserved for a group of Latinos that were speaking to each other. Yeah. You know, I I wouldn't cross that line. No, you know? I, it's funny you mentioned specifically the joke piece because I actually was just talking about this with my husband. And, you know, again, his life is very Jewful, <laughs> um, very Jewish. And he was like, I would never – like, he's like, I wouldn't even make a, a generalization about Jews based on my experience, you know, our life. It's not something that he would even consider doing. I'm much more comfortable doing that. Not just about Jews, but about everyone, but that's probably a problem. (laughs) Um, You know, but I I really appreciate that sort of perspective on it. I mean, it's interesting that you say that, too, because I was recently at a family gathering. It was a family member. She's white and her father married a Chinese woman. So her siblings and extended family are all Chinese American. They were over and they were some tw- 20-somethings and we were talking about Ali Wong and they didn't know who she was. There was some, and they were all Filipino-Chinese mashups, actually. And, you know, and and I was like, what, there's this whole thing about Filipino... And I was, like, going into it and then I realized, like, after I oh, went into... Oh, no, into, I can't say this out loud. I, but I'd already... I, like, said it and I was like... And they were like, that's funny, but they had no idea. And then I was like, am I talking about fancy Asians and jungle Asians to... <laughs> People who are Filipino and Chinese, and it's absolutely not my place to make this joke here. And this is um, a week ago. So I'm just saying, like, you know, <laughs> we're all learning where our, where the lines are. And I do this as a job. But I think that that's the thing. I mean, you're just, you're just learning as you go. Yeah. I mean, that's part of this process, right? It's like there are no concrete answers. There's no right and wrong. You just do the best you can. And, I mean, you're going to make missteps. You're bringing multiple cultures together. Yep. You're not going to play everything the right way. Yep. 
Agreed. But I will certainly not make any jokes about my <laughs> wife's family culturally <laughs> or about my wife's religion. I will not do it. No chance. <laughs> In the spirit of of all of us learning, you know, Matt, what what do you struggle with as a parent? You know, are there are there questions that you have had that are really like weighing on you in terms of raising these two beautiful kids of yours? I'd say the biggest question we're working on right now is as we start to approach um, kindergarten for our oldest son is the balance between um, wanting to raise him or put him into a diverse environment versus simply what's the best environment from an excellence standpoint. I hear air quotes around the best. Or what is the best, I guess, is the question. What is the best? Is the best balance? Is the best something that provides diversity? Or is the best just the best academic environment, period? And we're trying to figure out, like, what is the best thing for a two- and four-year-old for their existence 20 years down the road? And I think so that's the thing I think we just we really struggle with as we're looking at these schools and so if you guys have any thoughts, send them my way. <laughs> well, I, I um, don't have any answers, but I will I will reach out a hand and a hug saying this is, you know, as as we said before, my kids are exactly the same age. And figuring out how to navigate like a deeply segregated school system and understanding kind of the social forces at work that put us as parents in a position where, quote, excellence is diametrically opposed to who we are and what our families look like. And that if we want, especially in New York City, like a, quote, good school, that means we're participating in some ways in school segregation. It feels to me like the first big test of our um, morals and our philosophy put up against our inherently selfish desires for our kid and to do what we have always been told is the best thing for our kids which is always find the best, best school for them, or at least that's how I was raised, right? And I went to, like, essentially an all-white school in an all-white area because it was the most important thing for my parents, and I'm forever grateful because I went to a great school, and it's also, like, not what I want for my family. And see, for us, like, what's so hard is that because, like we talked about earlier, is, like, I'm going to have two black, Latino, black, however you want to look at it, boys, and... In an effort to sort of provide the best opportunities for them, I have to recognize that they have to do better than their counterparts. They have to go to better schools than their counterparts because Mm. when I look around at the other people of of color that I know, they've all been exceptional. They've all gone to great schools and great things because in order to level the racial playing field, the people of color tend to have to do better. And so I can't necessarily say, oh, well— I'm going to value culture and diversity for sure over academia because wherever I look around, when I look at people of color that have have gotten to places of success, whether they're black or Latino or whatever, it's they tend to have gone to great institutions of learning because that is something that levels the playing field. When I walk into a room full of white people, and I say that I went to Stanford, it levels the playing field. It, it, it doesn't level it, but it at least balances it some. And I don't know if I can afford to not try to put my kids on that same track. That's exactly what my husband says to me every day as we have this conversation. And you're not wrong at all. 
that's the thing, right? Is that like that is one hundred percent true. As an immigrant kid and married to another immigrant kid, we see that the thing that our families invested in was in our education, and now like my sister in law is at Harvard. One generation later, right? So it's like, how can we say that that's not right? I mean, I, I don't have much to contribute to this part of the conversation because I have a 15-month-old. So I'm like, Does, should she go to preschool in the fall? She'll be really young. Like, I, that's where I'm at. So, <laughs> But um, one thing I'm grateful for in this conversation is also just talking about education, about what we believe and the values that we have that it, like, provides us all with whether it's the stepping stone to creating more balance in an, in an incredibly unequal world. I'm, I'm excited to see how this progresses, and I, I'm thankful that you're both doing this before me, <laughs> so you can tell me what to do. So one of the things that I just find incredibly important about everything in Mashup is, like, getting to hear all of these perspectives and knowing that there's not one right answer. And like these questions about school and diversity and and how to navigate this and what's best for our kids. And it's so important. And also there's a lot of ways to kind of make our way through it. And I'm excited to think about that and to know that we're going to kind of navigate this together and that as mashups and having made this community together, we can help each other and ask the questions and and know that we'll end up on the other side together. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I'm just, I'm so grateful that we can have this conversation and, and that we can be open about what feels like life-defining decisions. And also that, like, we love that you guys write us these letters that share with us like your big questions and hopefully we can tackle them together. Personally, I'm just going to sit with this whole conversation for a while. As a parent, the most surprising thing about being a parent and being in a mashup family is that I'm always surprised <laughs> because it's always constantly changing. And every time I think that we're settling into a rhythm or a choice, it changes again. And sometimes it just feels like my head is spinning. So it's been super nice today to take time and a breather and just sit with smart people and reflect a little bit. Amen. Well, speaking of taking a breath and reflecting a little, our podcast is headed into a little break, but we can't stay away completely, fam. So keep an eye on our Twitter and Facebook for details on when we're back with more of these conversations and sign up for our newsletter at mashupamericans.com slash newsletter, which you'll get in your inbox every week. The Mashup Americans are me, Rebecca Lair, And me, Amy Choi. Our producer is the great Lizzie Jacobs. Music this week by DJ Rob Swift and A Lot Moment. Shoutouts to a few of our super fans, Lauren Carranza and Charles H. Baker. We see you and we hear you. And thanks to all of you who trusted us with your thoughtful parenting questions. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. Bye. Ciao. I've been staring at the edge, edge of, of the water, water as long as I can remember. <laughs> just saying. I really can't sing. This is not a good idea. My voice should not be. You can just be the hype man. Every trail I track, every path I see, every road leads back.